You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to The Central Cast. This is actually a re-recording of my talk from Sunday, September 25th. Um, We had some technical difficulties in the church service, so this did not get recorded live. I am re-recording this at home, so there will not be a &A (laughs) Q&A following since I am alone, but thanks for tuning in anyway. So here's, here's my talk. In an effort to further embody our commitment to social justice and racial equity, the board of directors has created what's called a land acknowledgement statement. Some of you have probably already seen it on Facebook, because I posted it uh, about a week ago. It's also on our website. Thank you to Max for drafting it. Let's, Let's read it now. We acknowledge that the land our building occupies is part of the unceded ancestral home of the Gabrielino Tongva people. Uh, A quick word about those names. Gabrielino is the Spanish name for the Tongva people. Tongva is their actual tribal name. All right, let's, let's, go back to it here. We acknowledge that the land our building occupies is part of the unceded ancestral home of the Gabrielino Tongva people who have been systematically enslaved, killed, assimilated, and displaced since European settlers arrived in the mid-16th century and who are still not federally recognized as of the writing of this statement. One of the first burdens the enslaved Gabrielino Tongva were forced to carry was the building of the San Gabriel Mission, which should which should be understood as part of the long history of displacement and genocide of the indigenous peoples of the Americas at the hands of a colonial and white supremacist Christian church. While we are sadly unable to reverse the atrocities inflicted upon the Gabrielino Tongva people, we renounce and condemn all theologies and versions of the divine that contribute to dehumanization, violence, and racism. And we recognize and celebrate the Gabrielino Tongva people as the ongoing caretakers of the land, water, and cultural resources of our area, end quote. In the spirit of this statement, I want to talk today about what it means to decolonize our theology. Now, most, if not all of us, have already decolonized our theology to a great degree when we rejected Christian nationalism and this idea that America is a Christian nation and that white European Christian settlers were chosen by God to come here, seize the land, displace and subjugate the native inhabitants, and set up a Christian nation. But that's not all it means to decolonize our theology. The word decolonize means to understand that the Christianity we've inherited is largely a white European Christianity that was shaped and formed over the course of many centuries in what was then called Christendom. Christendom is a term that is a conjunction of the words kingdom and Christianity. Christendom basically means Christian kingdom or Christian empire, which is an oxymoron if there ever was one. Um, So Christendom refers to the merging of the church with state and imperial powers, the state and imperial powers of medieval Europe. So the Christianity we've inherited comes to us from that context, which is to say that it was shaped and formed to serve the interests of that power, primarily European male power and the power of the various nations and monarchies of Western Europe, who wielded Christianity 
during the colonial age as an instrument of domination and subjugation in the new world. Christianity was a powerful tool in the hands of the European colonizers like the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the English. They literally came to the Americas with a sword in one hand and a cross in the other. Understanding this and returning to a Christianity based on Christ's preference for the poor and the oppressed, his rejection of worldly power and wealth, his rejection of those who would use worldly power and wealth to oppress and harm others, his rejection of those who would use religion and God to oppress and harm others, uh, and his rejection of the social hierarchies and the power dynamics of his day uh, that oppressed the poor and marginalized. You know, understanding all this uh, about the gospel and the person of Jesus of Nazareth uh, and following in his footsteps is what it means to decolonize our theology. And so in the spirit of that this morning, I don't want, or I'm sorry, uh, you're probably listening to this at another time than in the morning. I'm reading it in the morning still. Uh, but in the spirit of this statement um, or in the, of all this, I, I don't want to just read this land acknowledgement statement and leave it at that, but also talk about and honor the spiritual heritage of the Tongva people and the broader spiritual heritage of the indigenous people of the Americas, because I think we can learn a lot from them and maybe learn more about ourselves in the process. The Tongva believed in a supreme being called Chinigchiniks, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name. This supreme deity, uh, this supreme being went by other names, but Chinigchiniks was uh, one of the major ones. Anyway, it was believed that this being brought order to the chaotic primordial world and then went on to make all living things, animals, humans, plants, etc. Which, which interestingly is similar to the story we find in Genesis, right? Of chaos preceding everything and then order being brought out of chaos and then the rest of creation unfolding. The Tongva believed that Chinigchinix was not just a creator, though. Uh, this being was also a moral lawgiver. And in cooperation with other deities and spiritual beings, he assigned the various Native American tribes their own distinct languages and territories. And he enforced a kind of moral law, a moral code that prohibited things like murder, rape, and theft. The Tongva also believed in an afterlife and thought that the gateway to it was actually Millard Canyon, which is where the Arroyo Seco runs over by JPL. I'm sure most of you are familiar. This is where Devil's Gate Dam is off the 210, uh, right there where La Cañada, Pasadena, and Altadena all kind of meet. Actually, this is where uh, we did our church hike a couple months ago. Uh, that trail uh, we hiked is called the Gabrielino Trail, which again is the Spanish name for the Tongva people. Anyway, that, anyway, that trail and that canyon is, is a sacred, sacred place and traditionally understood to be the gateway to the afterlife, a gateway to the celestial plane, which is kind of interesting because now, you know, JPL is over there, which is, uh, you know, also a kind of gateway to the celestial plane, quite literally speaking. Uh, it's interesting that uh, may, maybe uh, some believe that, that that space over there uh, is somehow like a thin space, uh, a thinly, you know, uh, veiled place between our world and the celestial plane anyway. We were there recently, right? Many of us have hiked that trail. Anyway, so, so the Tongva people believed in some form of an afterlife, but they did not believe in evil spirits or any concept of hell or the devil. That is until the Spanish arrived and introduced all these ideas to them. Like many other Native Americans in the Southwest, 
some of their most sacred religious ceremonies included the use of hallucinogens. The Tongva used this plant called jimson weed, which grows all over town. Uh, on Sunday, I actually brought um, a, a, uh, a cutting of this plant that I found actually on a run about two blocks from my house. It grows all over, all over town. Anyway, the Tongva would eat the seeds or the roots and have these intense visions that they ascribed you know, great spiritual significance to, just as many people today still use like, you know, magic mushrooms, LSD and other psychedelics um, to have these intense spiritual experiences. These drugs are seen by some as chemicals that awaken parts of the brain that are normally not functioning or, or functioning, but not tuned <laughs> or sensitive to these higher levels of reality. These chemicals are seen as like keys that that unlock certain doors or software that allows the neural circuitry of our brain to surf the cosmic internet, as it were, and go places it normally cannot go. The metaphors abound, right? The point is pharmacology and theology have always been intertwined. People have always been using these substances in their spiritual explorations. In fact, anthropologists speculate that the use of hallucinogens was common in most ancient religions, which of course all began as tribal cults and various forms of shamanism. Consider that basically all our sacred texts like the Bible, the Quran, the Vedas, etc., they they all have they all tell us that divine revelation is often given during altered states of consciousness, during you know, dreams or visions, trances. This is when divine revelation often comes to us, we're told. You know, who could read those stories and not wonder if the people involved were were high? Well, sometimes <laughs> they, they probably were. Consider the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden story. We're told that this was a plant or a tree that could give you the mind of God. The fruit of this plant could expand your consciousness to divine status and give you so-called ultimate knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. You know, who could read that and not think that the ancient authors of this text we're at least playing on this well-known trope that, or this well-known fact that certain plants had these mind-altering, mind-expanding powers. Again, these themes are found throughout many ancient religions and, and indigenous religions are no exceptions to that. With regards to the Tongva, jimson weed was primarily used as a rite of, in a rite of passage ceremony for young men. The visions these men, would have were understood to be like spirit spirit guides or sources of inspiration and inner strength that would guide them the rest of their lives if of course they survived the ceremony as it turns out jimson weed is is incredibly toxic and could kill you so please don't go pick some and and consume it uh, there's safer ways to trip but that's a very brief overview of the tongva religion uh, it's important to understand that even framing it though in those terms framing it as a religion is kind of problematic because it's a very Western and European or Eurocentric way of thinking about indigenous forms of spirituality. Uh, understanding this is part of what it means to decolonize our theology. In a sense, there is no such thing as the Tongva religion. There is no such thing as Tongvaism. You cannot convert to Tongvaism or the Tongva religion the way you may convert to Christianity or Islam or some other religion. The unique spiritual and social cultural heritage of the Tongva people, like many Native American religions or Native American uh, social cultural heritage, uh, it is not reducible or extractable from the rest of what it means to be a Tongva or a Navajo. The idea that it's possible to do that 
and convert to the Tongva or Navajo religion is a very Western and European definition of religion. And so part of what I think it means to decolonize our theology is to reimagine religion and spirituality itself as a way of life that is inextricably tied or connected to every other part of life. Indigenous religions were generally fully integrated into daily activities. Everything was seen as a kind of spiritual practice, hunting, fishing, cultivating crops, building shelters, etc. These indigenous, the indigenous worldview in general doesn't separate life into neat little categories of, you know, secular and sacred, religious and non-religious, at least not like we Western European Europeans do. When Christian Europeans like Columbus first arrived here, they looked for a religion or spiritual tradition among the indigenous population that resembled the structure, traditions, and, and worldview of medieval Christianity, medieval European Christianity. When, when they didn't find that, they assumed that the natives weren't religious or spiritual at all. They thought they were godless and, and, and religionless, they, they actually said. Obviously, they were completely wrong, and the indigenous peoples of the Americas had rich spiritual traditions and beliefs. But much of this went unnoticed because, again, the colonizers looked at everything through the lens of medieval European Christianity. But imagine if they knew what we do and had the wherewithal to take those lenses off and see a much bigger world, a world full of rich and diverse spiritual traditions and a world where one's religious or spiritual life is not separated or distinct from the rest of life. Having this understanding is also what it means to decolonize our theology. And I want to finish today by mentioning that there is a new translation of the New Testament that came out last year uh, called the First Nations Version. I just bought a digital copy of it on Amazon. I think it was only 10 bucks. Again, it's only uh, the New Testament. It doesn't include the Old Testament. And it was put together by a handful of indigenous Christian Bible scholars and indigenous Christian organizations. So, so the language in the text accurate, accurately reflects the language and worldview of indigenous people. And it really opens up the text in some unique ways. At the very least, it reveals just how much are other versions of the Bible, like the New American Standard, the New Revised Standard, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, and certainly the King James Version, it reveals how all these, these versions are really speaking from a Eurocentric perspective, from a white European Western perspective, and particularly a white Anglo-Saxon perspectives, a Northern European perspective. So having translations like the First Nations version functions as a corrective and a reminder that we all have come to the text wearing certain cultural lenses. And by understanding that, we can learn to accept that there are different and perhaps better ways of reading the text. This too is what it means to decolonize our theology. As we turn towards communion today, and obviously I'm saying that as part of you know, what we talked about on Sunday, um, uh, and you're, you're free to take communion here as you're listening to the podcast, <laughs> uh, I just want to read to you a sample uh, from the First Nations version, uh, particularly from, uh, specifically from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or what the First Nations version calls the first letter from small man to the sacred family in the village of pleasure. <laughs> I love that. Small man is referring to the Apostle Paul, whose name literally means small man in Latin. And the village of pleasure is, of course, referring to the city of Corinth. Sacred family means the, the church there. So let's read this now, again, from the first letter from small man to the sacred family in the village of pleasure. 
This is the sacred, the sacred tradition that came from our honored chief, a tradition that I have received and passed on to you on the night that creator sets free, which is Jesus's name here, by the way, creator sets free. Our honored chief was betrayed. He took some fry bread. He then gave thanks to the great spirit, broke the fry bread into pieces and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat it to remember me. In the same manner, when the evening meal was over, he took the cup of wine, gave thanks to the great spirit and said, this cup represents the new peace treaty brought into being at the cost of my lifeblood. Whenever you drink this cup, drink it to remember me. For until our honored chief returns, each time you ceremonially eat from this fry bread and drink from this cup, you are retelling the story of his death and its full meaning and purpose. The word of the Lord, the word of the honored chief, the great spirit. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in today, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast and uh, catch you next time.